So Deuteronomy 6, page 130. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow your gods the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God, as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath. To your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. The second Bible reading tonight is from Matthew chapter 4, um, verse 1 to 11, and that will be found on page 682 of your Bibles. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city 
and had him stand on the highest point of the, of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Michael Winram. I know I don't know everyone here. I usually sing to you, and today I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to start with a question. When was the last time that you were tempted? And when I say tempted, I mean a real burning desire to sin. Or when was the last time that you were confronted with a choice between choosing something that you know is good and choosing something that was bad? Was it when you were alone? Was it when you felt lonely? Was it when your wife annoyed you or your husband didn't live up to your expectations? Was it when you were at work? And how did you go? Were you successful? Were you successful in beating the temptation? Or are you caught in a cycle of sin that you can't break? Today we're going to look at a passage in Matthew. We're going to have a snapshot, a little window into the life of Jesus, and we're going to watch a battle between Satan and Jesus, and we're going to look at how Jesus faced temptation. And what I hope that the Spirit will teach you is that Jesus battled temptation with the Word of God, with the Scriptures. But I want the Spirit to teach you more than that, and I'm hoping that he does. I also want him to teach you that we, when we face temptation, not only need the Scriptures, but we need Jesus. We need to run to Jesus. We need to cling to Jesus. Because Jesus promises that when we face temptation, he will stand beside us. He will fight with us. He's been there before. And he wants to fill you with joy. And he wants you to experience the victory that he experienced. So that's where we're heading. Let me pray. God, our temptations are big because we have made Jesus so small. So I pray tonight that you would make Jesus big. I pray that you would help us to see his supremacy, that you have given him all things and put everything under his feet. Lord, I also know that the devil wants to make me sin, and he wants us to sin, and he really wants this to be a waste of our time. So I pray that Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 2, would be here with us, standing in the congregation, singing your praises, and I pray that your spirit would speak through me, through the scriptures, so that our hearts would burn with a desire for Christ. 
Amen. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 17. In chapter 3, Jesus is baptized, and at his baptism, the Spirit descends on Jesus. And in chapter 3, verse 17, God says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. In Luke, it says that Jesus was immediately led into the desert by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of Jesus' public life. And the Holy Spirit's first leading is into the desert to be tempted by the devil. In fact, Jesus' public life begins and ends with temptation. When he succeeds in the desert, the devil doesn't leave him alone. The temptations become more intense. The path that Jesus walks becomes darker before it ever becomes light again. And even when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the same temptation that that the devil levels at him in the desert is again thrust at him while he is hanging there. If you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. You saved others, but you cannot save yourself. We must not think of the devil as an impersonal force. He is active. In this passage, he's referred to as Satan, the devil, the tempter. In other passages, he's referred to as a liar, the father of liars, the out, a deceiver, somebody out to outwit us. He's the chief opposer to God, and he is active. And what's interesting here is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, leads Jesus into the desert to be tempted by Satan. We should expect, therefore, that if we have the Spirit, if we have the Spirit and we're being transformed by the Spirit into the likeness of Christ, we'll become like Christ, not only in his holiness and his spirituality, but we'll also become like Christ in his experience of conflict, in his experience of sorrow, in his experience of agony, and also his experience of triumph and victory. And I suspect it's proportional. So the more you are transformed by the Spirit into the likeness of Christ, the more you'll be tempted. It's interesting that the most godly men that I know are tempted. They're attacked with anxiety, low self-esteem and health issues. And if someone were to say to me, I think, that if somebody were to say to me, I don't think I'm tempted... I think I would be concerned that perhaps, just perhaps, they didn't have the Spirit. In Ephesians, Paul tells us, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that's certainly my experience. I'm tempted. I'm tempted to pursue comfort over suffering for the gospel. I'm tempted to promote myself and my own reputation over promoting Jesus and others' reputation and exalting others. I'm tempted when I'm exhausted to find relaxation in front of the television. Jesus says that we're to find rest in him, but I more commonly find rest on the couch than with Jesus. And the devil knows that. 
And the devil knows that the more I'm entertained by Hollywood, by television, by movies, the more my life is wasted for the cause of Christ. I've also been tempted, as many of you already know and as many of you are, in the sexual realm. I don't know what your temptation is. I don't know what hook Satan has to catch you. But whatever the temptation is, we'd do well to watch Jesus, to look at him, and to see how he confronted Satan when he was tempted. So let's do that in verse 2. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You know, although this passage is going to go on and describe three temptations in the Gospel of Luke at this point, it says that Jesus was tempted for every one of those 40 days. And after 40 days of being tempted and having no food, Jesus, Matthew says, was hungry. It's somewhat of an understatement. I don't think I could last 40 40 hours without food, let alone 40 days. But but I think the point is that, that Jesus is physically weak, and Satan knows this, and he wants to attack Jesus in his weakness. He uses Jesus' physical circumstances to, to tempt him. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Well, Jesus knows that his food is to do the will of the Father who sent him and to finish his Father's work. So Jesus responds in verse 4, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus responds to Satan's attack with Scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3, and I'm not sure if you know Deuteronomy 8.3, but at the beginning of Deuteronomy 8, it says that God caused Israel to hunger in the desert so that they would learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Israel's hunger was to teach them that God's word is more important than food. Now, when Jesus is leveled with this temptation by refusing to turn stones into bread, he's being obedient to God's word. He's trusting that because the Spirit led him there, that God would provide for him. I find that Satan does the same thing to me. He attacks me in my circumstances, and particularly when I'm weak. When it comes to sexual temptation... Satan will often tempt me when I'm alone, when I'm asleep, dreams, when I'm sick, and when I'm hungry. That's when I'm the weakest. But I know that the scriptures, in particular 2 Thessalonians, says that God's will for my life is that I be sanctified and avoid sexual immorality. And I've had to learn that I need to deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow Christ, even if I'm lonely and even if I'm in pain. For some reason, God has given me a a ministry, I think, to people who struggle with anxiety and depression. I've not personally experienced it, but I have watched anxiety take hold of people with a crushing force that all you can feel is hopelessness and helplessness. And in that circumstance, you're tempted to think that God cannot provide for you and will not look after you. And in those moments, unless you can recall things like Psalm 73, where it says, Who have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my blood may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. 
If you haven't got those words of Scripture flooding into your mind, what do you have? But Satan always also attacks me in my comfort. I'm a very personal person, and I need time alone. I often feel like I need space. I'm happy to share my faith, but I don't want to offend anyone. I have a very demanding job. I work long hours, sometimes on the weekend. I'm time poor, and I really don't get much time to relax. I need my couch. I need my television. I need my movies. I need the friends that I like. But you know... That's right, Christine. You sing it. But in those moments, what I think Satan hates is if we say with the Apostle Paul... I count everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. I compare my house, my friends, my children, my desire for a companion as loss compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. We must learn to be like Jesus, no matter what our circumstances are. And we must follow Jesus' example to trust God's word. If the Spirit leads us to where we are, God will provide us for us. And we must learn to trust the Scriptures. However, knowing little bits of Scripture is not enough. Satan knows the Bible too. And he'll use Scripture to tempt you. Let's have a look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up out of their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Here is the Bible in the mouth of of the devil. Satan is quoting from Psalm 91. The psalm itself is directed at people who trust in God. In the psalm, God promises to protect and deliver those who trust in him. But it's not an invitation to test God's promise of protection. Verse 7, Jesus says, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Satan responds to Jesus, Jesus responds to Satan's attack with Scripture. And this time it's Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You know, it's very easy to misquote the Bible and apply a passage in a way that it was never intended to apply. In fact, I suspect if you try hard enough, you can make the Bible say whatever it is you want it to say. For example, you can emphasize grace and passages about God's grace so much that you ignore holiness. You can emphasize holiness to the extent that you ignore grace and become a legalist. You can emphasize the supremacy of God to the extent that you don't take responsibility for your own sin. But we must learn to listen to the whole counsel of God and hold Scripture in balance. I have friends who have justified indulging in sin on the basis that God promises to forgive us our sins no matter what the sin. 
I also have a friend who said to me once that he justified his sin on the basis that his mate had done it, and Christ had restored him and delivered him from it. And Christ would do the same thing after he had his little fall. We must be careful to use the passages in the Bible, to not to use the passages in the Bible to manipulate God or to try and twist blessings from him. Satan will use Christian books, he will use preachers, he will use churches, and he'll use Christian music to tempt you. You know, my experience is that we get a lot of our understanding of God from the songs that we sing. The words of songs frequently will stick in our minds with more, um, more readily than the scriptures will. But we must learn to be like the Bereans in Acts who examined the scriptures to see if what the Apostle Paul said was true. And the only way we can do this is if we immerse ourselves in the scriptures, if we swim in the Bible. Well, let's return to the passage in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus would have known from the scriptures that God's plan for his life was to be given all the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus would also have known that the kingdoms of the world would only come to him after suffering on a cross. We know that because of Hebrews 5, where it says that throughout the days of Jesus' life, he offered up prayers and petitions with cries and, and loud bursts to the one who could save him from his coming death. He knew that he had to suffer before he would be glorified. And what Satan is doing here is offering Jesus a shortcut. He's essentially saying, if you would bow down and worship me, then you will obtain all of this without the cross, without suffering. Jesus responds in verse 10. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Once again, Jesus responds to Satan's attack with Scripture. Of course, Jesus would have known that Satan was a liar. He's the father of lies and Satan ultimately couldn't give Jesus what Satan was offering. But after Jesus confronts Satan with Scripture, the devil leaves him. And in verse 11, the devil left him and angels came and attended him. The irony of verse 11 is that God is fulfilling his promise here his promise from Psalm 91 to provide angels to guard and look after Jesus. The very psalm that Satan had used to, to tempt Jesus is now put into action. But you know what I find even more crazy about these verses? Is that these temptations are leveled at Jesus and for some reason, Jesus recalls passages from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Those passages are part of a group of commands that are in Deuteronomy. And God gives the Israelites these commands just before they go across into, into the promised land. But before he gives them the commands, God says to the Israelites, 
in chapter 6, verse 4 of Deuteronomy. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm about to give you these commands. David read this to us before. God says, I'm about to give you these commands. But before I give them to you, I want you to know that they're to be on your heart. They're to burn within your heart. I want you to talk about them when you're at home. I want you to impress them on your children. I want you to talk about them and think about them when you lie down, when you sit down, and when you stand up. I want them to be on the door frames of your house. I want them to be everywhere. I want you to take these words and I want you to inwardly digest them and know them. Jesus must have done that to be able to, be, to recall those passages when he was tempted in the desert. We're not told that he has any scroll. He doesn't have the scriptures in written form. He doesn't have an iPhone with an application that has the scriptures that you can scroll through and find the relevant one that you need for Satan. He, they come to his mind. He must have soaked himself in the word of God. He must have talked about them when he sat at home. He must have talked about them when he walked along the road. In fact, we're told in Luke 22 that he does just that. When Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus in Luke 22, just after the resurrection, he meets two disciples. They express some disappointment that Jesus had died and they'd hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. And Jesus, without revealing himself, starts with Moses and the prophets and opens up the scriptures to them. And after he reveals himself and leaves, the disciples say to each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he talked with us on the road and as he opened up the scriptures to us? When was the last time that your heart burned when you read the scriptures? When people come up here and read the Bible to you, does your heart burn? When Paul comes up and preaches to you, do you, do you burn from within? When I read that in Luke 22, my prayer life radically changed. I now pray that my heart would burn every time I read the scriptures. I need the scriptures in my heart. I need them not only in my heart, not only in my mind, but on my heart. I need to soak myself in the Bible every day. I need to start memorizing scripture like I did when I was a kid. Are you a husband? You need to start reading the Bible with your wife to protect her. Are you single like me? You should find other single or married friends to read the Bible with. I've been meeting with two friends each week now for over four years to read the Bible and pray. And frankly, it's been a huge blessing. They see things in the Bible that I never see. And if I didn't have them, I wouldn't. We single people need to learn not to spend too much time alone. And I know that's hard to hear. That's my experience. But we need to meet with other single people and other married people. And when we meet with them, we need to be careful not to talk about trivial things only, but to talk about the scriptures and what we're learning and what we're seeing and what we understand to be true about God. I'm not saying that every conversation that we have needs to be flooded with a theological debate. I was surfing with a mate two weeks ago. We surfed for about an hour and a half down in Manly. And after an hour and a half of just mucking around in the water, we got out and we were just standing with our boards on the sand. And he said to me, 
You know, I read Psalm 24 this week, and it said that God created all this. I generally don't talk very much, and I just stood there and I went, awesome. That's where we need to start. just need to sprinkle or season a bit of our conversation with parts of Scripture. When I meet with my mates on Wednesday morning, we swim for an hour. We spend more time in the pool than we do in the Bible. But, you know, that's what blokes do. We do things together. But we need to incorporate Scripture in those times. When it comes to temptation, we need to follow Jesus' example. We need to know the Scriptures. The Scriptures have to be on our hearts so that we can recall them in our mind when we're tempted. But frankly, the Scriptures are not enough. The scriptures are not enough. You see, there's a huge difference between Jesus and me. I've given in to temptation so many times that when I'm tempted, I'm actually tempted to do what I've already done. And the danger for me is to get caught up in a cycle of sin that I can't break. Sin, if it's too often becomes habitual and feels like you can't get out, And in those circumstances, and knowing that that's my background, what I need to do is cling to Jesus. We need to know the scriptures and we need to cling to Jesus. How does that work? Well, we need to, first of all, know that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus was tempted with the very same sins that we are tempted with. And he faced those temptations alone so that we wouldn't have to face them alone. Jesus doesn't stand off at a distance. He stands beside us and fights with us and says, I've been here before. I know what you're experiencing. I've done this, and I know how to get you through. Jesus says, I want to carry your load. He says later on in Matthew, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How does that work? How does that work practically? For these days, I perform a conscious act of transfer. And I wish somebody had told me this years ago. (laughs) When my heart is burning with desire to sin, when my emotions and my feelings want me to give in to what's in front of me, I pray to Jesus... Jesus, my heart is burning, and I want to give in. But I want my heart to burn for you. So I'm going to give you this, and I'm going to trust that you're going to satisfy everything that I need. And then depending on the temptation, I'll either just sit and wait for God to restore me, or I'll go for a run, or I'll go and find a friend and talk. That's how I pass my burden on to Christ. We need to know that Jesus was tempted in every way. But we also need to know that Jesus never sinned. He never sinned. And he promises that the same spirit that he received at his baptism, that gave him the power to endure temptation, that gave him the strength to endure the cross, is within us. I have the same spirit within me that gave Jesus the strength to stand firm. We need to learn to utilize the power of the Spirit 
I needed to learn that. I still need to learn that. We need to know that there's another dimension here. There's a physical realm and there is a spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm in, in my circles, I know very few people that see it. But we must become sensitive to the Spirit's leading. We must become sensitive to what the Spirit is doing in our life. How does that work? How do we do that? Well, you cannot have, I cannot have, a prayerless life day after day and expect to be spiritual at the end of it. I need to pray. The last couple of months, I've, I've been praying like this. And this. I won't do this forever. But sometimes I don't know what I need. And I say, God, I know that your spirit is with me and within me. And I don't know what I need. But I know that he will pray on my behalf. And then I wait. And then I pray for the things that I know I need to pray for. We need to know that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, but Jesus never sinned. And we also need to know that Jesus gloriously triumphed. Jesus was obedient to God's word, even in the face of temptation and suffering. And after he suffered death on a cross, he rose again from the dead, and God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And we too, if we cling to Jesus, will share in his glory. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And we live in hope that Jesus will return and will bring his reward with him. He says in Revelation, if you overcome, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus will fill us with an eternal joy, an eternal peace, and an eternal happiness in his presence. And he says, yes, I'm coming soon. What's more than that? Jesus says, or Jesus does, Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us. That's massive. In Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In John 17, Jesus prays the same or similar prayer for us. In John 17, Jesus says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Jesus prays for us. He hasn't left us alone. He draws near to us and he says, trust me. Cling to me, and I will protect you. Does that comfort you? Jesus stands alongside you. He fights with you. He says, I've been here before. Pass this burden on to me, and I'll take it. I'll give you rest. I'll help you. 
And then if you stand firm, if you overcome, you'll sit on my throne with me and gaze upon my beauty. You'll find rest in my presence. Psalm 16. Well, I'm going to leave you now with a video which hopefully will shine a spotlight on the scriptures. I want to give you a taste of what's in here. I want you to start burning with a desire when you see the Bible. I want you to read for yourself what Jesus says, what Jesus promises, what Jesus says he has done and will do. My prayer is that you would inwardly digest these scriptures, soak yourself in the Bible, and cling to Jesus. Watch this. <laughs> 